right, welcome everybody. We're happy to see everyone here for the seminar this week. Um, before we get started, just wanted to remind you that the USGS Public Lecture Series is starting up again on March 25th. That's tomorrow evening at 7 p.m. Um, a Jaguar's Field of Dreams is the title of that seminar. Um, the link is also provided in the chat. So, all right, let's see if I can stop sharing the screen. <laughs> okay. Um, so, another. Looks like we may have lost Tamara. Uh, so, um, Susan, did we have any other announcements that Tamara was going to go over? She was going to announce the uh, talk on Monday the 30th. Um. <laughs> um, in any case, there are a variety of events coming up that you'll have uh, received emails for. Um, including, as she pointed out, the public lecture tomorrow and a series of other talks um, from the Innovation Center. I'll hand it over now. Um, uh, our next week, our seminar is Ian Stone, um, who was delayed from last week when we watched uh, the All Hands meeting from the Department of the Interior. Um, so please stick around and join us for that uh, in a week. But for now, I'll hand it over to Jean Hardebeck, who will introduce today's speaker, Ruth Harris. Hi, thanks. It's my pleasure to introduce Ruth, who many of you probably know. Um, a brief summary of her career. She was an undergrad at MIT. She got a master's degree at Cornell and earned her PhD at UC Santa Barbara. She's been at the USGS uh, ever since then and for probably about 10 or 15 years now has been the leader of the earthquake process probability and occurrence mega project. Ruth has won a number of awards, including the Department of Interior Meritorious Service Award, and uh, in 2019, she was elected a fellow of HEU. Um, some of the highlights of her research, she was uh, an early pioneer in the field of earthquake stress triggering, uh, particularly in um, showing how large earthquakes like the 1906 and um, other large earthquakes like that can cause stress shadows of areas where uh, stress has been decreased and the number of earthquakes decreases because those earthquakes have been delayed. She also wrote a very influential early review paper on earthquake stress interactions that's still uh, frequently cited um, in that field. Much of her work has also been in dynamic rupture modeling, including some pioneer studies on fault geometries and particularly what fault geometries will allow fault to fault jumping um, during earthquakes. Uh, she's been the leader um, for a number of years now of the SCEC Dynamic Earthquake Rupture Code Validation Project, which is um, uh, a large project that even, even though it's under the, under the auspices of SCEC, includes a lot of even international participants where everybody validates their code. And um, all the hard work that Ruth has put into this um, really ensures the accuracy of all the results that come out of dynamic rupture simulations. Today, she's going to be talking about some dynamic rupture scenarios for the Hayward, Rogers Creek, and Calaveras fault systems. Take it away, Ruth. Um, thank you very much, Jean, for the kind introduction. 
And now I seamlessly switch over to my slides and we'll see how this goes. Okay, and can you see my slides? Looks great. Okay, and then I will try to get my pointer to work, the laser pointer. And that, yes. All right, whew, first time. So welcome everybody, and I want to give a big thank you to Tamara Jepson, who hopefully won't be big blued forever. We'll be able to come back in. Um, Austin Elliott and Susan Garcia, who are doing all the hard work of the seminar, organizing, coordinating, and then helping all of us with teams. And thank you again to Jean for the kind introduction. So today I'm going to talk about a project that I started in an almost embarrassingly long time ago, I think almost 20 years ago now. And at that time, we didn't know as much about these FOPs as we do now. So I started on this project, and I think it was actually originally suggested by Art McGar. So I started on this project, and I finished the project and wrote a paper, and I went through internal review and did fine. But then I hesitated before sending it to the journal because I really wanted the model to be bigger and better. So in the time of our doing the first half of it, the Hayward and Roger, the Hayward and Calaveras faults connected up to each other. And then we also learned a lot more about the Hayward and the Rogers Creek faults. So that made me want realize that the model I was doing wasn't quite um, sufficient. So then I put the work aside for a few years and then started it up again. And then here is the culmination of it. So of course those two faults didn't in life, real life connect to each other, but we learned so much more about them. So I wanted to give many thanks to my uh, JGR paper co-authors and this new paper just came out last week. It was finally printed in its full glossy form. So my co-authors, Michael Burrell, Dave Lochner, Diane Moore, Dave Ponce, Russ Gramer, and Carolyn Morrow, all who work at the USGS. Gareth Funning from UC Riverside, Christos Kyriakopoulos, who's at University of Memphis, and then Donna Eberhardt Phillips, who's at GNS Science New Zealand, and also has an affiliation with UC Davis. Next, internal review. All right, a lot of people mutter and mumble about USGS internal review. Sometimes it slows down our work, but it actually makes it so much better. So I want to acknowledge internal reviewers for this manuscript, including um, really got really helpful comments from Evan Hirokawa and Jess Murray. And then the previous iteration of this manuscript benefited a lot from comments by Jin Lingkamper and John Langvine. So internal review works and it helps us make our science even, even uh, better and helps us find subtle flaws that we then improve and make things look okay. We received funding, or I received funding from the PG&E USGS CRADA for this work and then also for some related work that I'm going to talk about, uh, mention during this talk too. Then one of the great things about working at the USGS, one of the many great things about working at the USGS is all the colleagues that we have easy access to and can easily talk to about our work. And then we also have, of course, our colleagues in academia. So I want to just, this is a list of some of the many people who over the years got to have me ask them questions and give, and then they gave me thoughtful answers. I want to most particularly point out uh, Bob Simpson, whose name is first on the list. He's a has been a longtime mentor to so many of us at the USGS, a kind, wonderful, very smart and modest person who contributed a whole bunch to this work, especially in the first and the first uh, years that I was working on it. 
All right, so here we are, San Francisco Bay Area. Pretty nice place. We've got the ocean, we've got some mountains, we have the bay. So that makes it kind of good. Sometimes we go on fire, so that's not so fun. But we also have a pretty high probability of large earthquakes. This figure is from a fact sheet, um, Agard et al., USGS fact sheet published in 2016. And the results are based on work by Ned Field and, and uh, colleagues that were published in 2013 and 2014. And that's the California earthquake probability. So this is just for the Bay Area, focusing on the Bay Area. And here we have a 72% probability of one or more magnitude greater than or equal to 6.7. And that number 6.7 is due to a damaging earthquake in Southern California, the Northridge earthquake that occurred in 94. So we know 6.7s and bigger are bad, bad for us. And the 72% probability is for the 30-year period 2014 to 2043. Now we think a lot about the San Andreas Fault. It's really famous. Everyone knows about the San Andreas Fault. Who knows about faults? So we think about it as having a pretty high probability. But we also have these other faults that even have higher probabilities than the San Andreas. And these include the combined Hayward and Rogers Creek faults with a 33% chance of a one or more magnitude greater than or equal to six, seven earthquakes. And then down here, we have the Calaveras fault with the 26% probability, central Calaveras that then moves over to the northern Calaveras. So we also have these other faults that have high chances of having large earthquakes. We know that they've had them in either historic or geologic times. Rogers Creek fault had large earthquakes with, uh, as evidence from the geological, geological studies by Suzanne Hecker, Dave Schwartz, and others have worked a lot on the Rogers Creek Fault. The Hayward Fault, we know the best. The reason we have the haywired earthquake scenario is because we know that there was a large earthquake in 1868, about a magnitude 6.8 or so on this fault. We didn't, of course, have a lot of seismic recordings of that, but we do have some, some other information about its effects. And the haywired scenario has been worked on by uh, Ken Hudnut, led that, and then Anne Wine is also a collaborator on that, one of the key leads on that. And they've looked at everything from ground shaking to landslides, liquefaction, all the way to societal effects. And that's uh, work that Anne Wine is particularly focused on. Calaveras Fault. Calaveras Fault has also had large-ish large earthquakes, not quite as big, but the Northern Calaveras Fault there's geologic evidence of maybe one, one or two events um, that Keith Kelson uh, discovered, and I think those are smaller than magnitude six, or maybe around magnitude six. And then in our time, or some of our times, when we did have good recordings of earthquakes, the central Calaveras has produced events. There was the Alum Rock event, I think that was in 2010. Um, but then 1984 is the biggest one that we've had, low magnitude six, and that was, was well recorded. So these faults produce large earthquakes, but in addition to this, they also creep. So if we have to try to figure out what is the fact that they're creeping all the time or slowly slipping all the time, what does that do to the large earthquakes? Does it make them different or the same as our garden variety larger earthquake on a locked fault, such as the San Andreas Fault in this part of California? So that's, and then that, that is part of the study is to try to understand how the fact that they're a seismic slipping, what does that do to the ground motions and extent of rupture that will be produced when we do eventually have large earthquakes on these faults again? 
Okay, and this is just showing uh, two photos of the effects of uh, fault creep on the Hayward Fault. And these are these two photos are one of many um, in an open file report that was written by Phil Stoffer, like Phil Stoffer, and published in uh, Open File Report in 2008. The top is just showing what happens when you have fault creep, creeping fault intersecting a school. It doesn't go so well; they have to close the school. And then the bottom is kind of more just a fun thing to look at, but it's uh, what happens when you have creeping fault go through a city park. Your stone wall, which used to be pretty connected, it becomes disconnected. So sometimes you can have like interesting and curiosity kind of features like this, but other times when you're in intersecting your infrastructure, then it doesn't it doesn't work so well with fault creep. So fault creep overall isn't quite as dangerous, isn't, isn't as dangerous as large earthquakes, but it still does cause some problems. So creeping faults are rare, but in the grand scheme of things, they're pretty abundant in Northern California. And Diane Moore, Bob McLaughlin, I think there are one or two other co-authors have a paper in, I think, Tectonics in 2018, where they go and explain uh, why this is the case for this part of the state, why we have so many creeping faults. And these creeping faults include the Montcalm Fault, Bartlett Springs Fault, Rogers Creek, which isn't quite labeled here, uh, Greenville, Hayward, Calaveras, and then jumping down to Central California, of course, we have the famous San Andreas fault creep, and that's maybe the, even the one place in the world where fault creep on an active continental um, tectonic fault where fault creep is almost, if not the whole, um, slip budget. Then we head all, have to head all the way down to Southern California, the southern part of Southern California, before we encounter creeping faults again, and these are the superstition hills and imperial faults. So this is a review article I wrote about large earthquakes, creeping faults, um, published in uh, 2017. Creeping faults also some occur in a, some places in the rest of the world. They're still quite rare, and this uh, figure shows some of the other locations where creeping faults have also been also been noted. Some faults do respond after an earthquake, and they will there will be like noticeable post seismic slip. But for here, the the creeping faults that are being mentioned are those where they're slowly slipping all the time. So it's not just post seismic but it's, all, it's all, always happening. All right, so the question is, are, how are creeping fault earthquakes different or the same, different from or the same as locked fault earthquakes, your regular earthquakes? So for the, in the reviews of geophysics paper, did a comparison looking at two things, looking at the rupture areas, fault surface rupture areas, and then also looking at the ground shaking effects. So here's looking at the fault surface at the rupture areas of earthquakes that have occurred on creeping faults. So what I've done here is compared the predicted rupture area based on an empirical relation, an empirical um, relation published in uh, Tom Hanks and Bill Bakken's BSSA 2008 paper. So there, it's a magnitude, a paper about magnitude log area for crustal earthquakes. So look at what the predicted rupture area should be, and that's based on primarily locked fault earthquakes. And then what the actual rupture area was, anywhere where it's a red circle, is a creeping fault earthquake. Any plot, any part of the plot where you see a um, blue rec, a blue square is a locked fault earthquake. So just mostly look to see where the red circles are. And you'll notice the red circles falling in within the scatter of the blue squares. 
So at least in terms of rupture areas, it looks like the creeping fault earthquakes and the locked fault earthquakes are behaving the same. But the caveat is that the biggest creeping fault earthquake here that we looked at that we had good data for, actually for the ground motion, um, was a magnitude less than 6.7 earthquake. So we don't have information for magnitude greater than 6.7 creeping fault earthquakes. Okay, we did uh, also looked at the ground shaking and first published this in uh, a paper with Norm Abramson and published this one in uh, 2014, a GRL paper. And then uh, I noticed there was a glitch on one point on the plot. So anyway, showed it again in the 2017 Urbiza Geophysics paper. So this is just a quick synopsis of looking at peak ground acceleration versus earthquake magnitude for creeping fault earthquakes and locked fault earthquakes. The main takeaway from this figure, creeping fault earthquakes are the red diamonds, locked fault earthquakes are the blue and greens. So the main thing to notice is that the red diamonds are falling within the scatter of the blue diamonds for peak ground acceleration, falling within the scatter of the green diamonds for peak ground velocity. In other words, you can't tell the difference in the ground peak ground shaking between the creeping fault earthquakes and the locked fault earthquakes. Once again, this is just for magnitude less than six, seven earthquakes. So that's all the information that we had for the for creeping faults. So in the first um, figure that I showed you that had earthquake probabilities for magnitude greater than or equal to six, seven in the Bay Area. So the stuff I just talked about was for magnitude less than six, seven. But what about if you want to know about how creeping fault earthquakes behave if they're magnitude six, seven or larger? So we don't, we do not have empirical evidence for this. We just know that they have occurred, but we don't know what they look like or anything. So this takes us over to computational modeling. So two tools that we could use to solve this problem of how creeping fault earthquakes behave and what they look like are to use kinematic earthquake rupture simulations or dynamic or spontaneous earthquake rupture simulations. And when I use the word spontaneous, I mean dynamic, dynamic, spontaneous. So the main thing about them is that the earthquake is not predecided. Instead, it, it happens through a physical interaction of all the processes. So here is schematic. So other people's talks, including I think the talk next week by Mendenhall postdoc Ian Stone, We'll use the kinematic earthquake rupture simulation method. We've also maybe heard uh, talks by Artie Rogers, who's uh, showed simulations of Hayward fault earthquakes, high frequency, really nice uh, simulations, looking at high frequency ground motions from Hayward earthquakes. Next week's talk, um, and also Artie Rogers' talks, these are all using this kinematic earthquake rupture simulation tool. For these, it's already pre-decided what the earthquake source is going to be. It's already pre-decided how far along strike the earthquake will be, how, how uh, far along dip it'll reach, how much slip there will be, how fast it will slip. Everything's already been predetermined. And then they're trying to see what the ground shaking will look like based on that predetermined earthquake source. So that's other people's talks. My talk is about spontaneous or dynamic earthquake rupture simulation. We are trying to figure out what the earthquakes are going to look like. So we have that as an output of all the assumptions that we make. So we have to assume the fault geometry, as these guys do, and gals, the rock properties, as these people do. But they do not have to assume the initial stresses or friction because they've already, they already have pre-decided the earthquake source. So we're going to put all these pieces together. 
you know, have interaction among them, a physically self-consistent result. But beforehand, we don't know what the result's going to be. Instead, it is an outcome of our simulations. And uh, so these models predict ground motions, and our, our models also predict ground motions. All right, so step number one. Well, if you have all the stuff, but you don't have a code, all right, you're not going to go anywhere. So how about, first of all, let's go find a well-tested code. This brings us to the SCEC USGS Dynamic Rupture, Earthquake Rupture Code Comparison Group. And this is a congenial group of people. This, these are showing photos of everyone whose photos I could find, and I think I'm still missing some people here. Um, but these are our collaborators over the years. Some people have moved into other subjects. A few people went over to induced seismicity. Some people went into the oil industry. Some people went into the banking industry or reinsurance. But many of these people are still dynamic rupture modelers. And we people often start as students. Sometimes that's their thesis project where they have to write a code or use someone else's code. And then some people have made it all the way up to be senior researchers, uh, senior faculty, et cetera. But it's a evolving group. There are always new people joining and it's, it's very exciting. And the main point of our group has been to check and make sure our codes are working okay. And then also to talk about dynamic rupture science. So we've been around, I think uh, we started in late 2003, early 2004. So we've now been around um, for about 17 years and it's just a really good collaboration. And we've had people from by now at least uh, nine countries or 10 countries uh, participating. So these are the exercises that we did. These types of codes do not have any analytic solutions with which to test them. So really, I could just do anything and show some pretty movie and you would have no idea if I did it right or just made up something. You wouldn't, you wouldn't know unless you could also go and check, use the code, your code or my code, and go rerun all those, uh, use all the same assumptions and then see if we get the same results. So when we were doing this, we wandered a little bit, maybe for a few months, and then we finally settled on one benchmark where we could get it all together. And that was a very simple model of a vertical strike slip fault in homogeneous full space. So we didn't even have the Earth's surface. Then we tacked on the Earth's surface. So we went through all these different exercises and for every one of them, we had everyone use the same assumptions. So same fault geometry, initial stresses, friction, rock properties. And then we'd see if we'd still both get the same, if we'd all get the same ground shaking at the Earth's surface, predict the same ground shaking at the Earth's surface and actually throughout the whole 3D model. And then also if we would get the same uh, rupture by progress. So we went through all these exercises, slowly making changes, because as soon as you make a drastic change, guarantee it's all going to fall apart and no one's going to match. So we did it gradually. We did the bimaterial problem. Some of these things we did because they were uh, they were uh, studies that, that individual scientists had done in our group, and then we just wanted to see if our codes worked okay with them. Others, we had kind of more funding motivations or uh, other reasons for doing them. So in the middle part, we were stepping slowly towards the bottom two cases, which was uh, doing simulations of extreme ground motion. And the reason we were doing these is uh, there had been a model that Joe Andrews, who was in a member of our group was before he retired, he'd done some simulations for extreme ground shaking at Yucca Mountain, the site of our nation's formally proposed high-level nuclear waste repository. So we wanted to check and make sure that his code and our codes were all working the same and producing the same results. And that did work well. And we also published a paper on that in 2011 in Seismological Research Letters. 
Next, we wandered into the theme of friction. So uh, we looked at different forms of rate state friction. And then the bottom two, uh, we did also included thermal pressurization, modeling thermal pressurization. And this last benchmark over here is one that we um, just finished in October and was presented in October at our most recent uh, SCEC workshop. Next, we um, also looked a bunch at fault geometry. So the upper left example here was fault branches, and fault branches are related to our um, specific uh, Rogers Creek Hayward uh, Calaveras Northern Calaveras simulations because there too we have a branch that's a lot fancier than this branch, but uh, we did branches and the reason that we did branches for the code comparison exercise had to do with Gene Hardebeck uh, discovering a branch fault very close to Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant in central California. So suddenly the owner of the power plant was very interested in knowing whether or not a rupture could go from the main fault there and go on to the fault branch and thereby get closer to the power plant. That also was very helpful and led us to some extra funding, so that was pretty nice. We looked at heterogeneous initial stresses. These are often used in simulations and have been since the 1980s, sometimes to uh, represent other things such as fault surface roughness. We looked at the fault step over problem. That's one of my favorites just because it's the first one I ever did for my own research, the first ever multi-fault rupture study. We looked at elastic and viscoplastic yielding. What happens when the off-fault material, the off-fault rocks don't behave elastically? This one was motivated by a study that two of our group members had done for Southern California where they're simulating, simulating large San Andreas fault ruptures and it's their effects on the LA basin. But the simulated ground shaking that they were getting was way too high. It was much higher than, than seemed reasonable. So they wanted to know if their code was implementing, um, could implement viscoplasticity to try to tamp down those ground motions and that did indeed work. Then we ventured over to rough faults. Rough faults are really popular. People have thought about fault roughness for years, but it's only in more recent times that they've been able to put it into their codes. So we did that. And then we looked at a range of velocity structures, 1D vertical, 1D horizontal, and then 3D, um, sort of like the SCEP community velocity model, the Harvard version of it. Then we looked at one specific earthquake. We modeled the 2004 magnitude 6 Parkfield earthquake and uh, did uh, ground synthetic ground motions at each of the at the stations that actually recorded ground shaking during the earthquake. Although we didn't do that great at matching the data, but we did a really good job of matching each other. So partly encouraging. All right, so so far we've tested the codes for a variety of generic ingredients, and these include mostly generic fault geometries, uh, generic rock properties. And when I say rock properties, I mean VP, VS, density, and then also elastic versus viscoplastic or other forms of inelastic yielding, a variety of initial stress conditions, and a variety of friction formulations. We wrote our most recent, uh, we had a group paper in 2009. Our more re most recent one that really summarizes the whole group effort was published in Seismological Research Letters in 2018. And we have a group website that uh, Michael Burrell has put together. And he's also played a really important role in this whole group. And it's now called, the SCEC website has now been renamed to by SCEC, strike.skep.org slash CDWS. And if you have any questions about any of this stuff, definitely uh, feel encouraged to send me an email and I'll be happy to um, communicate or we could talk, talk some other way too. All right, so 
we started this because we were trying to find a code to use. That was the goal uh, a bunch of slides ago. So here is a list, this is table one of our SRL 2018 paper, and this shows a bunch of the different codes that have participated in our code comparison exercises. So we have about 10 codes are still active. Sometimes people would have a code, um, they came into the group, maybe it was their code they used as a student, or maybe it was their advisor's code or someone else's code, and then they might say, oh, this is too hard to use, I wanna go use someone else's. Maybe they had their own code and then they made it a little bit better and then renamed it. Um, but most of them, I guess, have been staying maybe with the same name and sometimes with the same uh, main authors. A few of them are available online and have really good documentation. Some of them are available on GitHub or the computational infrastructure for geophysics. And then I think uh, one or two are available on, on Bitbucket too. Others are, you need to contact the authors, but all authors are very excited, unless they've already had to move over to industry for their employment, um, are very excited to have you use their code. So definitely go see our paper. Um, and if you have problems getting access to it, just send, uh, send me an email and I'll give, you, I'll give you a copy. Okay, so now we need to choose the code for our own work. And we use Michael Burrell's finite element code. And he wrote about it in a GJI paper in 2009. And there's also documentation about it on our SCEC website. It has been used to run all of the benchmark exercises that we've done. And I really like to collaborate with Michael Burrell. So that is the code that we use for our work. Okay, so we use fault mod. Step one, we've chosen our code. Step two, now we need to target this to our specific case that we're trying to model. We need to figure out the correct ingredients for our Rogers Creek, Hayward, Calaveras, Northern Calaveras dynamic rupture simulations. So we need to figure out our fault geometry, rock properties, initial stresses, and friction behavior. And so far we've done step one, which is the code. Now we gotta figure out all the rest of it. We gotta figure out all these guys. Okay, so let's take us back to our setting. This is a really nice figure that Luke Blair um, put together for me for our GGR paper, I annotated it a little bit. So anything that looks a little sketchy is because I annotated it, but Luke gave me a great figure to start with. All right, so we have our San Andreas fault that we're all familiar with. Then we have our Rogers Creek, Hayward, Calaveras, and Northern Calaveras. These are, this is the fault model that we are gonna use and you'll see a side view of it in the next slide. Important features of it are, I should say, first of all, the Rogers Creek fault, Actually, it does go a little farther north, but for computational reasons, we had to truncate there. Our model got too big for our memory, computer memory. So we ended up truncating it near the city of Santa Rosa. We have this thing here called CF, and that's the connector fault. This is a fault that was discovered by Janet Watt, Dave Ponce, and colleagues, and it was imaged using shallow geophysical studies and imaged beneath San Pablo Bay. And this is a very important link in our modeling between the Rogers Creek Fault and the Hayward Fault so that they're actually a seamless fault structure. Without this connector fault, earthquakes starting on the Rogers Creek Fault in our model are unable to jump across to the Hayward Fault and vice versa. So we include this, um, we include this connector fault because we know at least it exists in the upper um, hundred meters or a few hundred meters of the Earth's crust. We have point Pinole, which is point zero on our plots. The Hayward Fault, and right next to the Hayward Fault, of course, goes through the city of Oakland. This is the right star. It isn't super far away from the city of San Francisco, the left star. 
traveling down the Hayward Fault. The Hayward Fault, when I first started this work many years ago, we didn't know yet that the Hayward and Calaveras were connected. They're not obviously connected at their surface, but at depth they are connected. And that's been um, seen by uh, work by Bob Simpson, work by Dave Manneker and Andy Michael, and uh, work by Dave Ponce, and a, yeah, a bunch of So a bunch of people have seen this, that they actually connect. Then we have the San Jose city of a million people, Calaveras Fault, and we truncate it at uh, just opposite uh, the city of Gilroy. It does go also a little farther and merge into the San Andreas Fault, but for computational reasons, we need it to end there. Then we have the Northern Calaveras Fault over here, which is a branch off of the main fault surface. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna be nucleating earthquakes on the Rogers Creek Fault, the Hayward Fault, Calaveras Fault, and the Northern Calaveras Fault. We're gonna start them there and then see what happens. Okay, so here's a side view of our fault geometry. It's a 3D fault geometry and it's set in a 3D mesh. This is our schematic of our not quite a schematic, but a course view of our 3D finite element mesh. A top view just showing the fault surface itself. And it's dark blue around it because we're using smaller elements closer to the fault, bigger elements farther away from the fault. And then here's a side view going from southeast to north 35 west, central Calaveras, Hayward, connector fault, image by Janet Watt and colleagues and then the Rogers Creek Fault. And then we have this kind of fancy branch off the Northern Calaveras Fault there. We're gonna nucleate earthquakes on each of these on the Rogers Creek Fault here, Hayward there, Central Calaveras there, and Northern Calaveras there. And of these, three of them are a little bit arbitrary locations for nucleation. The Hayward Fault is the one that seems to have a physical basis for starting there. And that's based on work by Dave Ponson and colleagues who noted that the San Leandro Gabro geologic unit that you'll see in the next slide, next two slides, uh, appears to concentrate the stress in, in that region. So they proposed that this could be a likely nucleation site for large Hayward fault earthquakes. Oops, go back. All right, now let's go to our rock properties. We've got our fault geometry. Now we have our rock property. So here are our rock units and they, um, is a, this is a really nice uh, model. I don't think we have this in too many other places, even in the world, the 3D geologic model. And it starts with the Big Bay model. So this is, and I should say these are map, these are horizontal slices through the 3D model at 140 meters depth. And at seven kilometers depth, we have a whole 3D model, but these are horizontal slices through it. And the Big Bay model is, uh, I think, published though in publication to it, even though it's got a ton of work in it, is by Bob Jackins and co-authors. So that's the bigger view, bigger view. And then the smaller view, which is in this little light gray rectangle that's a little hard to see um, on, this, on this figure, is uh, the finer scale geologic unit structure um, published and presented in Russ Gramer's paper and co-authors paper in 2005 and Jeff Phelps and co-authors papers in 2008. And I should also notice note that there's a lot of overlap among the authors. So this is a really impressive uh, geological study that has a nice 3D geologic model. And we use this geologic model to then convert that information into a physical property. So what are the P wave, S wave, S wave velocities of the rocks? And then what are their densities? 
Okay, so now let's take a side view of this. This is looking along the fault surfaces. Remember before we had our central, this is going from southeast to northwest, looking along strike. And then this is depth, the vertical axis is depth in kilometers. So we're going central Calaveras, Hayward, connector fault, Rogers Creek fault, and now we're blowing apart the two sides of the fault, not literally blowing them up, but just separating them out. So we have the east face of that fault surface, the west face of that fault surface, and now we're seeing which rock types, which rock units touch each side of the fault. And we do the same thing for the northern Calaveras fault, the east face of the northern Calaveras fault surface, and the west face of the northern Calaveras fault surface. Main thing to notice here is that San Leandro Gabbro, which I mentioned briefly a little bit ago, and that's this orange rectangle here. So it is a strong, dense rock. And the fact that it's strong will come up later when I talk about friction, but it's also a dense rock, has higher velocities, um, wave propagation velocities. And then right next to it, we have the serpentinite, and that's a weaker, kind of slower rock. That's on the east face. And when you go to the west face, you also see the San Leandro Gabbro again, it's touching the west face of the fault, but it only goes down this far. It only goes down a few kilometers on the west face. It doesn't extend as deep as it does on the other face. So we'll need to deal with that later on when we're doing friction. The fact that you have San Leandro Gabbro on one side at depth, but something else on the other side at the same depth. But for now we're looking at the velocities, especially the shear wave velocities and the densities. Okay, so we have our geologic model, and we're gonna see this again, just a little bit smaller. Here, that same figure I just showed you, east face and west face of the main fault surface, Central Calaveras, Hayward, Connector, Rogers Creek, and then Northern Calaveras. And now we're gonna turn that into a shear wave velocity. So for our 3D simulations, we need to know what the shear wave velocities are throughout our whole big giant structure. We need to know what the densities are um, so we can do our wave propagation, we know the shear modulus, tells us how much slip we'll get, we need all that stuff. So we convert from the geologic model, 3D geologic model, to a 3D model of shear wave velocity and density, and the way we do that is using the equations of Tom Broker. So he put together equations, I think it's published in 2005, relating the rock units to VS, VP, VS, and density. All right, so we have our rock properties. Now we need to know about friction. How does friction work? So some people like to use very fancy friction when they do their simulations. And this is a good idea if you're doing, say, earthquake cycle models, you do need to do that. So you're not only doing the earthquake itself, but you're also doing what happens during the post-seismic time. And you need to do the inter-seismic time. So that you need to do that. You need to do fancier friction. Um, but we are just doing the earthquake itself. We're just doing the co-seismic rupture. And for that, as far as I understand from talking to people who do the lab experiments, that that is fine to do that. Slip weakening is the same as rate state friction if you have, um, if the parameters are similar. And this, and Kenny Ryan and David Oglesby showed this uh, a while ago, maybe seven years ago in a paper they published, and others have also shown this to be true. So I'm going to use slip weakening, and the thing I like about slip weakening is it doesn't require as many parameters to be assumed. So for slip weakening, it behaves kind of like Coulomb. It's kind of like a Coulomb friction with some extra features. 
So you start out the strength of the two sides of the faults that what, what lets them slip past each other or not starts out as a static coefficient of friction times your normal stress, which is time dependent. Um, and then as the fault gradually slips up to this critical slip weakening distance, the strength linearly decreases down to a dynamic coefficient of friction times the time dependent normal stress. So you don't instantly drop as soon as as soon as the fault starts slipping. Instead, there's a gradual drop. And this actually uses up some energy in the process. Slip weakening critical distance has been inferred from inversions of seismological source data to be anywhere from like 0.1 meters or, should, or even less than that, all the way up to five meters. So for our study, we used uh, 30 centimeters, 0.3 meters as our slip weakening critical distance. Some people do a fancier model and they might say, oh, it should vary over the fault with depth or a long strike. There's very little, maybe no um, direct evidence of how we should vary that parameter. So for ours, we just keep it constant at 0.3 meters. Then we need to figure out our static and dynamic coefficients of friction. So what we do is go back to our geology and our lab studies to look at sliding coefficients of friction that have been measured in the lab. So we look at the geology for this in lab experiments. And then the static coefficient of friction has been um, related to dynamic coefficient of friction as being uh, about 20% bigger. And that's work by Teng Fang Wang that he published a while ago. All right, so let's go back for our geology. Our main, um, main rocks that are pretty different along our fault surfaces, we're back looking at our fault surfaces again, east face and west face. So we noted the San Leandro Gabbro earlier. It's a strong rock, but stronger than everything else. We have our San Leandro Gabbro. Right next to it, we have our Serpentinite, which is much weaker rock. And there were field samples collected on the Hayward Fault, and they were studied carefully. And the results were published in a California Geological Survey report by uh, Carolyn Morrow and colleagues. In addition, there's been a bunch of work, of course, for the San Andreas Fault at depth, uh, San Andreas Fault Observatory at depth, and a lot of lab work done on those, on samples from there. And that those are discussed a lot in many papers, including uh, one by Diane Moore and colleagues that's published in Journal of Structural Geology in 2016. So the San Leandro Gabbro from the Morrow et al. results has a dynamic sliding coefficient of friction of about 0.8, but due to that, that's at the surface. But as you go to depth, it um, makes sense for it to be a little lower. So we choose a dynamic sliding coefficient of friction of 0.65. Then work on serpentinite, lab experiments on serpentinite show a dynamic sliding coefficient of friction of 0.3 to be appropriate. The rest of the rocks don't behave that differently from each other in lab experiments. Um, so we assign most of the rest of the rocks, many of which are Franciscan Melange, a dynamic sliding coefficient of friction of 0.5. Right, so now we are back to the situation where we have the San Leandro Gabbro, that really strong rock on one side at depth, but not on the other side. Also have the serpentinite on one side, doesn't match up with the serpentinite on the other side. So what do we do when we have two different strengths of rocks on each side of the fault? So what we do is we end up using the weaker value between the two. And this is work that uh, Colatini et al. Um, published in 2009 that we should do it, that approach. And then also work by Dave Lochner and Diane Moore and, and co-authors. So this is what we end up for our final dynamic sliding coefficient of friction along this fault surface for Central Calaveras Hayward Connector in Rogers Creek. 
Now the northern calaveras, it has lots of cool rocks abutting it, but they're they don't have at least um, from the views that we have or the information that we have, there's no uh, serpentinite or San Leandro gabbro abutting it. So we just give it a coefficient of friction, sliding coefficient of friction of 0.5. All right, we've got our friction, we've got our fault geometry, we've got our friction, and now we've got to figure out our initial shear stresses. So this is one where we got kind of creative. Um, we don't know what they actually are, um, but we can assume them. And the technique I did is to say that when you have a creeping fault, it's actually relieving some of the accumulating tectonic strain that might be building up on a locked fault. So first we had to go and, and, and uh, construct a model for the creep rate on, this, on these uh, fault surfaces that we have here. So Estelle Chelsard had already um, presented a creep rate figure or picture for central Calaveras and part of the Hayward Fault. And then Gareth Funding in his work had a model for the Hayward Fault, which he will hopefully publish really soon. So we have the Hayward Fault, but we don't have one big model for the whole thing. So we merged those two. And then for the Rogers Creek Fault, we used uh, the wisdom of Gareth. The Rogers Creek Fault does creep farther north, um, but it does not have much of a creep rate, if any creep rate, as they go into the section that we are looking at. So we put together this great big model. Northern Calaveras, we used a Estelle Sarge model, does in, in cover our entire Northern Calaveras Fault. So we use her model, and that's published in her co-authored paper in JJR 2015. So now what we do is we look at where the creep rate is one millimeter per year or faster or three millimeters per year or faster. So that's the interseismic creep rate. And anywhere where it's either one or the other and we look at them individually. So then we have two different images of what the creeping pattern looks like on the fault. So say our three millimeters per year slip rate, we use that or faster. Then anywhere where it's slipping faster than that, we assign it a lower initial shear stress. Okay, so let's go and move forward with that. So we have our fault geometry, our rock properties, our initial, our friction and our initial stresses. We have our code and let's go see some results. Scenario, large earthquakes. Okay, so remind us again, we're gonna start, have scenarios that start on the Rogers Creek Fault scenario earthquakes that start on the Hayward Fault, scenarios that start on the Central Calaveras, and then scenarios that start on the Northern Calaveras. When you start an earthquake, we don't know if it's gonna go anywhere, we don't know how big it's gonna get. That's the part of the spontaneous rupture propagation. We find out what happens. All right, so let's start here. Pretend the right side of the slide's not there, just look at the left side. So we're gonna do locked scenarios. So in this case, we pretend that the faults do not know that they're creeping. They just behave like regular garden variety faults. We're gonna do a nucleation on the Rogers Creek Fault and then the contours that you see, so sorry, I should say this is depth, this is distance along strikes. So we're looking at the fault surface. We're nucleating here on the Rogers Creek Fault and then the contours that you see are the progress of the rupture in half second intervals as it's propagating outward. So it's going out, 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 out. See it all the way and it gets all the way to the southern end of the fault, all the way down the central calaveras, all the way to the end, and then all the way to its northern end. We do the same thing. We start a nucleation, nucleate eruptor on the Hayward Fault, propagates, propagates, gets all the way to that end, propagates outwards, gets all the way to the other end. Calaveras nucleation, same thing. Sometimes they get slowed up a bit and that's where you see these bunched up contours. 
but still makes it all the way. And the Calaveras nucleation actually triggers a bit on the northern Calaveras fault. Northern Calaveras nucleation propagates all over its whole fault, and it always seems to do this in all our simulations. This one actually manages to jump across, trigger Calaveras Hayward, and then propagate the main surface too. Then on the right side of the slide, we see the final slip patterns for each of these situations. And this is final slip and con uh, contoured up to a little more than six meters. So it's hardy slip, a lot of slip. And these are the locked fault cases. All right, and then snapshots of the ground shaking at 15 seconds after nucleation, 30 seconds after nucleation. This is the ground shaking at the Earth's surface. This is a map view and for all these different things. And the main purpose of this figure is just to show you that, yes, indeed, we are calculating ground motion in these models. All right, now let's go say that we do care about the fact that the faults are creeping. That does make a difference to these earthquakes. And now we're going to look at where the creeping rate, the creep rate was three millimeters per year or higher, so these parts, and then assign those lower initial shear stresses with the idea that some of the accumulating tectonic strain has already been relieved through the creep, inner seismic creep. Oops, sorry. Okay, nope, went too far. All right, so let's look at creeping patches, left side of the uh, slide. Creeping patches are highlighted by the shading here. So these have lower initial shear stresses. Rogers Creek nucleation propagates to the north, propagates to the south, slows down a bit, slows down a bit, slows down a bit and then stops, almost makes it all the way to the end of the Calaveras, but not quite. Hayward nucleation slows down, but makes it through going to the south, gets slowed down and then stops early. Northern Calaveras nucleation always goes, has no problem ever in our model, um, makes it all the way through and then jumps a little bit, but then stops. And then just sample uh, samples of what the ground shaking looks like. All right, now let's use the one millimeter per year contour to find where the fault is creeping significantly and thereby has lower initial shear stress. So this is our biggest creeping section. So this whole part is with a few exceptions. And then Northern Calaveras, it's a bigger patch also. So for here, oh, and I should say for the last one, the Central Calaveras one nucleated but didn't go anywhere. Here we have for the one millimeter per year contour, so this whole shaded area is all creeping. We have Rogers Creek nucleation propagates down, gets lower, and then stops. So it makes it a little ways down the Hayward Fault and then stops. Hayward nucleation starts, goes nowhere. Central Calaveras nucleation starts, goes nowhere. Northern Calaveras um, rupt nucleation ruptures the entire Northern Calaveras Fault. and snapshots of ground shaking. All right, so to summarize, we've used the spontaneous or dynamic rupture method to simulate large earthquakes on the Rogers Creek, Hayward, Calaveras, and Northern Calaveras fault system. We produced large simulated earthquakes, some of which are stopped by the creeping sections and some of which aren't stopped. The most important factors were the nucleation site, the fault geometry, and the pattern of fault creep. And in the future, we have a bunch more things that we want to do and included in this list is modeling a lengthier fault system. I think we have more computer memory so we can make the faults a little bit longer as they should be.
And then also looking at things such as the effects of inelastic yielding or in using different um, distributions of the initial stresses. We have our new published paper and here's just a, another advertisement for it. Okay, so now we're gonna look at movies from a case that's a little variation on what you just saw. And for this one, we are gonna use the three millimeters per year with three kilometers of cohesion. We're gonna look at a Hayward nucleation. So it's this case here, this second line case, Hayward nucleation. And the previous ones didn't have cohesion at all. So we have our creeping patch here, but then we also add a little factor of cohesion in the upper parts of the fault surface of the faults. And that's to make it so that you don't have quite a strong ground shaking. In the simulation, sometimes interactions with the free surface causes a huge amount of ground shaking that probably doesn't happen in nature. And there's probably damage and stuff that prevents that in reality. So we do that we accommodate that by including cohesion. So let's go look at the simulation. We are going to open up to questions now. We've had a few in the chat, so we'll get started there. And of course, feel free to type your questions in the chat or um, raise your hand and we'll, we'll help you turn on your videos and ask your question yourself. So the first question was from Joan and she asked, does your compilation of creeping crustal faults include those that exhibit transient creep, um, short low day seismic slip events? Um, and what is the fraction of these faults for which their aseismic and slow slip behavior is simply unknown due to in insufficient observations. So a couple of questions there. Okay, so this is a question about the reviews of geophysics article, the compilation. Yes. There. Um, so for those, the creeping faults that were included in that list were ones where we have uh, modern uh, geodetic uh, observations that the fault creep is occurring. And I would say that the list in that paper as a big table that I put together in that paper, 2017 paper, is is a, a subset. So I went and uh, did a literature search and looked for everywhere that I could find things, but I didn't include, say, uh, subduction zones. And then lots of times there were uh, there was evidence of post seismic slip, um, but I only included cases where there was a good observation of interseismic slip and generally not just at the Earth's surface, but a little bit deeper. And in, in that table too, it also says what the depth extent was. Okay. Um, and then a question from Brad um, about your models. It says, what are you using for the initial normal tractions on the fault? Uh, yeah, so the normal stress is constant. I think it's uh, going back to uh, 75 MPA. Is that right? Uh, I have to look again. But anyway, it's a constant value. Yeah, I don't. I don't use a depth dependent value. We don't use a depth dependent value for the normal stress. So we just we just use a a, con a constant value for it. 
And that's something that to look at in the future when we um, look to vary the initial stress conditions a little bit more. So it, for these uh, dynamic rupture models, uh, well, Brad, of course, knows this, um, but in case other people don't know, everything's time dependent. So you're starting with your initial ensure normal stresses, but then they vary with time as you have all the interactions of all the effects, especially the propagating waves and the stress waves. So for this, um, we have constant normal stress of depth because I didn't know um, from observations, it didn't seem to indicate how how we should vary with that. But some, some people instead do might do a depth dependent normal stress. And I know, Brad, um, that you have done this um, for your work. Okay. And then Brad also asked if you've compared your ground motions to empirical ground motion models. So I'm a little scared to do that right now. Our um, finite element mesh is uh, 250 meters, so we don't really have great resolution for the ground for the ground shaking. It's kind of more of a qualitative a qualitative look at the ground at the ground motions. We have a really long. I guess maybe we'd be okay in our long periods. Uh, another thing we had to do is we had to truncate the shear wave velocities, and I wrote down what we truncated it to, um, down to 1950 meters per second. So we not only have kind of biggish elements, but we also had to truncate the ground motions. So we're kind of hesitant to do that comparison, but I definitely did think about it. It would be better to do if we had um, smaller smaller element sizes and could do more of the low velocities. But it, it's a good, it's a good, uh, definitely a good thought and something we should do. Okay, thank you. Um, and a question from Janet, might there be a greater degree of cohesion near fault asperities? Stepovers, bends, are intersections. So that's a good question. So we could put the um, initial stresses into, uh, we could either put them into the normal stress or we could put them into cohesion. So yeah, yeah, that, that's a good idea to just say that they're, the fault's more stuck uh, where you have these other, so we'd have the geometry um, pinning pinning some parts of the fault, and if you could put in, uh, if we add model fault roughness, that would also take into account this into account where we might not need to put it into cohesion, but instead it might end up in the normal stress. But but that's that's a really good idea. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay another question from Joan: What does the paleoseismic evidence tell us about the persistence of creep on crustal? Sorry, on crustal faults over timescales of hundreds to thousands of years. So that is a big topic, especially um, for the creeping section of the San Andreas Fault. And we want to know, and that's the part of the fault that has see, appears to have the fastest creep rate relative to, say, deep slip rate of any fault, I think, in the world. Although maybe there, may, maybe there were one or two others in that compilation that were also inferred to be creeping really fast or to be relieving everything aseismically. So, so far, um, paleoseismic studies by Nate Toke and Ramon Aerosmith and others have not been able to find evidence of large events, really large events in the creeping sections. I think uh, this is still a topic of discussion and maybe work that uh, Josie Navit is doing now for me ranch. Maybe that will be able to help um, find some more evidence. But that's a big question, like how long? When you have fault creep, how long does that last over geologic time? I don't think that we know that. Yeah, you're right there. That, that's still something we are working on figuring out. Okay. Um, from Jeff, as you go towards more complex models, how does how uncertain 
is the energy sink aspect of the creeping segments rheology that you were trying to implement. Okay. Yeah, so right now the energy sink, we while well, we uh, use a lower initial shear stress, that's probably my fault we did that. Um, my co-authors went along with it probably hesitantly. Uh, so that's like an energy sink, a lower initial shear stress, but there are probably other ways of doing it. You could also model it with rate strength and friction, but then you need to assume even more parameters. We also have our slip weakening critical distance, although that applies for, that's an, like an energy sink, although that applies for both the creeping and the lock sections. So probably the transform fault setting is the best way, the best place to look at, look at these sorts of things, playing around with the models because you have so many events and, you know, of course, Jeff, because you've worked a lot on the oceanic transform faults, but trying to figure out what limits, uh, what limits the rupture extent in those settings and then just uh, playing around with the models for that. Okay. Um, and another question from Ian. Um, in the plots showing slip contours for your various scenarios, it looks like the slip consistently slows down shortly before initiating, before speeding up again. Is this an actual effect? And if so, do you have any idea what may cause it? Yeah, so sometimes it's slowing down just due to the change in fault geometry. Sometimes it's slowing down because you're encountering other um, uh, shear wave velocities of the rocks. So we have our 3D geologic model and each of those rocks um, have different shear wave speeds. So there's a whole combination of stuff. We have the initial stresses and then that they are evolving with time. The stresses are evolving with time, the, particularly the shear stress, but also the normal stress because we don't have a planar fault. Um, we have the uh, fault, the rocks, the different um, shear wave velocities from the rocks, and then we have our geometry. So we have all these different things. So we did, we do have a figure in our paper, figure 12 of our paper, where we looked at the relative effects of the fault friction, the and the velocity structure, and we did 1D models and uh, and uh, in our usual 3D models to try to see if we could pinpoint stuff, but it's it's kind of hard because you also have the effects of the free surface coming in there too. But yeah, so it's a real effect that you really are slowing down and then kicking up again and starting up again. Um, but why it does that in some locations is uh, easily understandable, but then in others is a little more complicated just because you have the interactions, all these different factors going on. That's a good question. Yeah. Great, thanks everybody. Um, a lot of Gratitude for your talk and compliments on a great talk, Ruth. Um, we have reached the end of our time, but we do invite everyone to stick around a little bit for to continue on the conversation a little bit more informally. Um, feel free to, to turn on your videos and chat a little bit. That'll be great. And thanks everyone for coming. We will see you next week for Ian's talk. Thank you.